Amen. Well, open your Bibles, brothers, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 23 is our text for tonight. And the title of our message tonight is Jesus' Resurrection and Our Mission. Recently, there was a, a conference in Los Angeles on the Puritans. How many of you guys heard of that conference? Okay, it was, uh, I think, the first time that they've done that in L.A. at Grace Community Church. And I don't know what your opinion is about the Puritans, if you read them or, or whatever, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are very uh, conflicted about the Puritans for one reason or another, and typically the comments go along these lines. You know, I don't like the Puritans very much. They had their issues, these guys. And you know what? My answer to that always is, yeah, so did everybody else, Right? Um, they certainly had their issues. They were fallible men, just like the reformers were, but God used them in an amazing way. And so did our, many of our biblical characters that we sort of read about, Moses and Abraham and Isaac and these heroes in the faith, right, that are in the hall of faith uh, of Hebrews chapter 11. They had their issues, but none of those characters were the main point of the story, right? As we read through the Old Testament or through the biblical narrative, God is the main point in what he's accomplishing and redeeming uh, a people for himself through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, even as it pertains to the Puritans, like everyone else, yes, they had their issues, but they were so helpful in two particular areas. One, in that they had a deep devotion uh, for God, and then many of them wrote so much about our faithful duty before the Lord, before the God of the universe and the light of his greatness and how we needed to live life. They were very practical about the way they lived their lives. One of those Puritans... And one of my personal favorites and personal dead heroes of the faith is John Owen, okay, who is very difficult to read. But, man, if you have an opportunity to read John Owen, make sure that you read him and read him slow. But he has so much to say about both our devotion to God and our duty to God. He was a giant of a theologian. And obviously many people talk about John Owen and many aspects of his life and of his person. But what they don't know about John Owen, many people, was that he was a man well acquainted with pain and much trial in his life, both personally and in his family. In fact, I don't know if you know, but 10 of his 11 children died in infancy. Yeah, imagine that. And the 11th, I think, lived a, a longer, but eventually also died. Imagine that. I mean, Owen really experienced grief beyond what any of us would ever experience in the loss of 10 children like that. Um, and one day as he contemplated the reality of disease and death, he wrote this, which we're going to put up on your screen. The preciousness of a medicine is revealed by the presence of the disease. We will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of testing. We must be tried to realize the glory of being preserved. To those to whom Christ is the hope of future glory, he is also the life of present grace. And listen to this. Christ is our present grace and future glory in our greatest suffering. Amen. So true, isn't it? How many of us haven't experienced that and tasted of that reality and of that precious truth that he writes about? Brothers, without Christ, life is meaningless and purposeless right? Without Jesus, we live in this fallen and broken world. And listen, we can do nothing about it without Jesus. Without Christ, we're helpless and hopeless if it weren't for Christ. But because Christ lives, and that's what we're studying about, we can, as the song says, face tomorrow, right? 
Because Christ lives, all fear is gone. Because we know Christ holds the future, then life is worth the living. Why? Because we know Jesus lives. Amen? And of course, because Christ lives, we know that while we're here, we have a mission to fulfill as, as Christians. And this mission consists of proclaiming not only that Christ died for sinners, but also that we have a Savior who rose from the, from the dead. And that's what we've been learning about in John chapter 20, beginning last week with our senior pastor who came in here and, and looked at John 20 with us, that, that Christ is no longer in the tomb, that he is a risen Savior. And we saw that there was a, a group of women who initially went there to the tomb to properly wrap and anoint the body of Jesus, but what happened? He wasn't there anymore. His body was no longer there at this tomb in this garden. These women then went back, went back to, the, to the disciples and they reported this to them, and, and Peter and John raced to the tomb only to find his, his clothing and his faith, face cloth neatly set aside. Remember that? And now by the time Peter and John leave, Mary Magdalene is back. And we pick up the narrative in John chapter 20 and verse 11, if you're already there. John 20 verses 11 through 23. And what we see in this particular text is that in the midst of Jesus appearing to his followers... He doesn't want them to lose sight of their mission once they've been convinced that he's risen. In other words, something that really stands out in our text, as we're going to see, is that there's a close connection, listen, between Jesus' resurrection and our being convinced of Jesus' resurrection and trusting in Jesus and our mission. And obviously, that's got implication not only for his disciples then, some 2,000 years ago, for us as well, there's a close connection between Jesus' resurrection and our belief in that resurrection and our mission as well. And so from this text, I want us to consider a couple of main points centered on our mission, okay? That if you and I are going to be missional men, and by that I mean men who are committed to the Great Commission of proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in the, re the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to be missional men, then we need, first of all, to see the person of the mission. See the person of the mission in verses 11 through 18. Uh, this should go without saying. We have a mission to accomplish on earth, brothers. If you are a man who is in Christ here tonight, but we must never lose sight of who this mission is centered upon, who this mission is, is all about. And it's only as we see Jesus rightly and accurately that we understand what our purpose is for living on this earth as men of God. And we see this here in the, in the case of one precious follower of Christ in verses 11 through 18, who at least initially, she didn't see Jesus clearly as the risen Christ. And thus, initially, she misses the bigger picture of her place within this mission of Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says, but... Mary, Mary, pause right there. Remember who this Mary is. This is Mary Magdalene, formerly a demon-possessed woman. Mark that. A former, former demon-possessed woman, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And it was this woman who had been indwelt by satanic forces who basically becomes the first unlikely witness of Jesus' resurrection. Surprising, isn't it? This is grace. Once again, isn't it? Think about this. This right here is yet another picture of how God works through broken vessels, brothers. 
and that he chooses this particular woman to be the first witness of his resurrection. If we were writing out the script of Jesus' resurrection, we wouldn't pick her as the first eyewitness, would we? We would pick somebody more, more prominent than this. But again, this is how grace works. I like what Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, speaking of the resurrection. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, And last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me, to Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, he writes, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Boy, what humility, right? And brothers, I hope that you see yourself this way. As a recipient of God's grace, not worthy to be, to be known, to, to know the resurrected Jesus as he has revealed himself to you. Well, such is the case with Mary Magdalene here, a very unlikely first witness of Jesus. And by this time, she's returned to the garden where the tomb is, as you know. She and the other women had reported to the others what had happened. They didn't believe them. In fact, they viewed their words as nonsense, according to Luke chapter 24, the parallel account. But now Mary's back to the, to the tomb, and the text says in verse 11, if you notice, that she stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to, to look into the tomb. This poor lady is in utter despair. In utter dismay here, she's, she's deeply brokenhearted, full of emotion, mourning over Jesus, weeping and sobbing profusely as Jesus' body is gone and she doesn't know what's taken place. Maybe you can, you, you, you've had a moment like this, similar, though certainly in not com uh, comparable to what Mary is experiencing here. But maybe you had a moment like this where something completely unexpected has happened in your life. Or some major tragedy from a human perspective has taken place. And you're beside yourself. Nothing will console you. In counseling, I've had situations like that with people over the years. Situations where people are so engulfed in a state of mourning and of, and of grief and even of despair. Crying so much that they can't even see clearly. Literally, they can't see clearly. Because of how much weeping they've done. So much crying. Their eyes are, are, are puffy and their face is completely swollen. I've been in situations like that. This is what's happening with Mary right now. She's weepy and, and sobbing. Little does she know what she's about to receive, this ultimate revelation. Watch this. Look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. The parallel accounts tell us that they look like, like young men. In other words, they, they, they took the form of young humans. But again, think about this. Her vision is so blurry that she doesn't even recognize them as angels here. To her, they're just normal people, young men. Verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? As if to say, this is not an occasion for, for mourning, but for rejoicing. Obviously, she doesn't get that right now, right? Understandably, she answers in verse 13, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's got no idea that Jesus has risen, nor that she's talking to angelic beings here. But now, in the flow of saying this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Again, picture it. Deep emotion. 
puffy, swollen eyes, probably exhausted from all of the crying. She can't even think or see clearly right now. This woman, on top of that, it's early in the morning. It's not completely clear yet. So she needs some serious help, and Jesus is about to give it to her. Verse 14, Jesus said to her, woman, and when you keep hearing that way of, of addressing her, don't think about our culture of today where maybe somebody would use that in a condescending kind of a way and say woman in a condescending way. In those days, to, to call her a woman was actually a title of honor, of respect, of reverence in some cases. And so Jesus asks, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is all she wants. She just wants to properly care for the Lord Jesus and take care of his body. And so she's thinking, this is the the gardener here, the one responsible for the missing body. If you've taken him, just be honest with me. Tell me where he is. All she wants to do is just care for, for the body of Jesus. Question, why doesn't she recognize Jesus? Did you think about that as you meditated upon the passage? Why doesn't she recognize the Lord Jesus? I think the answer is because while he's still the same person, he's now in a glorified, resurrected body, right? Certainly he resembled Jesus, but in the midst of all of this, he doesn't look exactly the same. It's why in Luke chapter 24, it says that when Jesus walked with a couple of disciples, a couple of followers of his, they didn't recognize him either, right? Until later on, their eyes were opened to who Jesus was in his resurrected form. And so he's now in a glorified state, but he wasn't some kind of a, of a phantom either. He was in a real glorified state. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, he now calls her by name. This is really awesome right here. And upon hearing her name, verse 16, she turned and said to Jesus in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She finally recognizes him upon him saying her name. I was thinking about this. It's like our children, right, who know our voices. I mean, you can dress up as I, I did when my boys were toddlers or my little girls were small and wore a disguise or whatever, but they can understand and hear daddy's voice. I couldn't fool them because as soon as they heard me call their name, they, my voice was familiar to them. It was soothing to them. Brothers, it's the same thing here. Mary, full of emotion, recognizes the voice of Jesus. She recognizes the voice of her shepherd. Turn back with me to John chapter 10. It's a few pages to your left, okay? John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. I kept thinking about this passage as I studied this. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus speaking here. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I love that. Jesus knows his own and his own know him and they know his voice. Just like Mary here. After walking with him for a period of time prior to his death, this was the sweet, soothing voice of her shepherd that she'd heard for so long. Isn't that the case for us, brothers? We know the voice of our shepherd. Amen? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We can identify with that psalm because we understand that that Jesus is our shepherd who guides us and protects us and leads us and provides for us. And even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the trials and the temptations of life and the difficulties that God allows us to go through, Jesus is with us. He's ever-present with us so that we do not need not fear any evil. So we can identify with this. Now, what would be your reaction at this moment if you were Mary and you recognize Jesus? I mean, you'd be beside yourself, right? You'd run up to Jesus and cling to him. And that's exactly what Mary does. She recognizes him, brothers, and she grabs a hold of him and takes a hold of him with all that she's got. Like this child who clings to their parent for dear life so that you don't leave them with the babysitter, right? Man, that was like the worst part of leaving my children, going out on a date with my wife, leaving my children with the babysitter. Those kids would be grabbing onto my leg. Get off of me, right? This is Mary. She sees Jesus and she takes a hold of him. She comes to see the person of Christ here. as not only the one who died, but also rose again, who is alive. And this is yet again a picture of us, isn't it? Of us, who by God's grace, our eyes have been opened, brothers. We've come to see Jesus, and, and he now is the central person of our lives and of our mission He is the reason why we live. He is the reason why we have a sense of purpose and a sense of significance. It's tied to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's for most of us in here, I'm confident. What about for others of you? Have you come to see the person of Jesus? As not only a historical figure, mythological figure, but as as the God-man who actually lived a perfect life, who died in the place of sinners and who rose from the dead, as our text is telling us. Remember the evangelistic uh, purpose of the Gospel of John, right? That these things have been written, John 20, 31, concerning Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and say it with me, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What kind of life? Quantity and quality of life found in seeing Jesus and in putting your trust in Jesus In the light of his atoning death and his resurrection, have you come to trust in this Christ? It would be a shame if you've been here through this whole study of the Gospel of John, going back to Pastor PJ, working through the Gospel of John, friend, and you still have not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a shame that would be, right? Now, beyond Mary seeing him, Jesus also wants to direct her attention. I want you to notice to the wonderful significance of what he's done as it relates to his mission on earth. Watch this. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Boy, that seems a bit harsh at first glance, doesn't it? Not until you remember that that this is what Jesus has been saying all along. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, right? I'm going to rise 
and I'm going to ascend and return back to the Father. He's been saying this all along. Thus, verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm not leaving yet, Mary. I'm not leaving yet. But in the meantime, what, is, what does she need to do? Having seen him, she has a job to do. What is that? Verse 17, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Oh, this is good stuff right here. Listen, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, there are some wonderful benefits of seeing the person of Jesus rightly and putting your trust in him. Notice that he calls them my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. You see that in verse 17? That's a staggering way of referring to them, isn't it? I mean, to be someone's brother in those days especially signified a deep connection, intimate relationship with, with Jesus. And that's what he's saying, that these disciples now have this intimate relationship with him like never before. At the end of Mark chapter 3, sometime read that account at the end of Mark chapter 3. Jesus is inside of somebody's house and he's teaching all of these people. And somebody runs from outside into the house and says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Who are my brother and mother? Who's my family? He says, it's those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are my spiritual family. Jesus redefined relationships. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That ultimately our true family are those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is why he's telling Mary to go tell them this. Tell my brothers this. Those who see me clearly and who trusted in me, they're part of my family. In fact, just as the Father is Jesus' Father, now God the Father is also their Father, right? Just as God the Father is Jesus' God, so God the Father is now their God as well. And this is the case for us who trusted in Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's good stuff, isn't it? That when you trust in Christ and the Spirit of God comes and lives in you, having been born again, you become the family of God. You are put, placed into the body of Christ. Now God is your Father, and we have brothers and sisters in Christ here in the context of the church, right? Brothers, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we are now part of God's family. And this is all wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus says, stop clinging to me, Mary. Instead, go spread the word about me. And she does it. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. What things? The things concerning their mission, as those who are connected to Jesus. This leads us to our second point, okay? By the way, this is going to totally throw you guys off. There's no three points tonight. There's only two points. <laughs> What? 
Second point and final point, you must first come to see Jesus as the central person of our mission. But second, having seen him, you must know your place in the mission. Know your place in this mission. It isn't enough to simply see Christ for who he is and to, and to trust him. But we now recognize as followers of Jesus and know that as Christians, we have a place in this mission. And this is very important because too many Christians locate their significance and their sense of purpose in other things rather than in Christ and his mission. Amen? And to some extent or another, we all can struggle with this. And I want you to see this. Pick it up in verse 19. This is after Jesus' disciples have seen the tomb. Mary Magdalene has reported to everyone that Jesus is alive. But what is everyone doing? Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Stop right there. So here are Jesus' own disciples. Those who have seen his works. Who have seen something of Jesus' power. They're paralyzed in terror here, waiting for the Sanhedrin to now come to, to, to come after them. The sense here is that they are padlocked inside of this room. They're like prisoners in fear, thinking that they too are going to be put to, put to death. There's seemingly no way for anyone to get in, right, from a human perspective. But watch this in verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Boy, what an understatement, right? All of a sudden, Jesus is in their very presence in bodily form, brothers. They can see him. Can you imagine? They must have been in utter shock, in utter dismay as they see him there. That's why the Lord says, peace, be at peace. Present tense verb. He was continually telling them, peace be with you. Why? Because they're shaken. They're in disbelief. And they, of course, shouldn't be in one sense. I mean, Jesus has been telling them that he would rise from the dead, right? Over and over again, he's been, he told them that he would rise from the dead. In the midst of this doubting, however, notice how our precious Lord is so accommodating and patient, isn't he? Well, we need to learn again and again as we read and meditate upon the person of Jesus, how patient he is and learn from him, brothers, in the way that we deal with one another as well. He doesn't say to these guys, what's the matter with you knuckleheads, right? I mean, didn't I tell you that like, like a broken record about what was going to happen, that I was going to rise from the dead? He doesn't do that. Notice how he meets them right where they are. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Note, he gives them evidence, doesn't he? He gives them proof that it is, in fact, him in bodily form. And this is so key. We've tried to bring this out again and again as we work through the Gospel of John. How Jesus provides proof for people, right? Who are looking for that proof. And again, brothers, I would remind us that Christianity is not blind faith. Our Christian faith is a factual, reasonable, substantial faith, isn't it? It's an informed faith. Nowhere is this more evident than in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and in him providing proof for his disciples of the fact that he had risen from the dead. Last week, our pastor took you to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul expounds on the, on the fact of the resurrected bodily uh, body of Jesus Christ. 
of the fact that this happened, that there were many witnesses that beheld Jesus in physical, bodily, resurrected form. And Paul says, if he didn't rise from the dead, all of our faith is is in vain, right? Might as well just go off, live, eat, do whatever we want to do, right? Live it up for all the pleasures of life, because what? It doesn't matter. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still dead in our sins and just go live it up. And then one day you just cease to exist and that's it. Super important. And so proof and and Jesus giving his disciples convincing proofs is so important of the fact that he had bodily, physically risen from the dead. And in fact, that's why later on, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus, listen to this, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many, and the NASB puts it this way, convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Why were those convincing proofs necessary? Because if the disciples were not convinced brothers of Jesus' bodily resurrection, they wouldn't be compelled to tell anyone about a risen, exalted Christ who could be the hope for their, of their lives and of their eternal well-being if they trusted in him, right? They needed to be convinced that he had physically, bodily resurrected, conquering sin and death. If they were to be propelled to go tell people about Jesus, the risen, exalted one, so important is this proof of Jesus rising from the dead that Luke's account says a, a few further things about his appearance to his disciples. I want you to go there with me, okay? Go to Luke 24. Luke 24. I love this. Luke chapter 24 and verse 37. It says that when they saw him, Luke 24, verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Watch this. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, emphatic construction there, by the way, to underscore the fact of his bodily resurrection, the fact of it. I myself, it is I myself. Touch me and and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So note that. Lots of factual proof that Jesus is is providing for his disciples so that they would be fully convinced and propelled to preach about him. Luke 24, verse 41. Even says Jesus enjoyed some chow time with his disciples, didn't he? Check it out. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? The disciples gave him a piece of broiled fish. So Jesus even having some some sushi with these guys, right? Mm. He showed them his injuries, had them touch him. He ate before them, not to put on a show, but so that they would be convinced of his glorified physical form, brothers, that he was now resurrected. Back in our text, back to John chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They're still wrestling, but they finally begin to believe he's, he's risen. Though certainly they're not a finished product yet, right? Their faith is being strengthened. And can you picture the exhilarating gladness and joy of finally coming to grips with this? What a moment for them. What a moment for them. But here's what I especially want you to see under this point. 
It's the renewed sense of purpose they should have now in the light of Jesus' resurrection. Now that they see him, they need to know their place within his mission, right? This is staggering, but also clarifying. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And now this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I've been sent by the Father. I've accomplished my mission on earth, right? His redemptive purposes. Now it's your turn, disciples. Now that you've seen me, now that you're becoming convinced yourselves of my risen state and of my, the fact that I've conquered sin and death, go and tell other people about me. Now I send you on this mission. Wow. First articulation here, post his resurrection of the great commission. That they needed to understand that they were there to accomplish a purpose. And he's going to reiterate the Great Commission again and again and again later on. But this is like a relay race around the track, right? Jesus is handing off the baton, and the first leg in this race are these disciples, these apostles here in particular, that are going to run this race and begin doing disciple making. Well, I'm sure that they, as we often do as well, felt quite inadequate for this mission, right? No doubt they lacked the strength and the power to fulfill the mission. This is why he had previously told them about the Holy Spirit. Remember in the upper room? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon my ascension. Be comforted. Be encouraged. Disciples, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who's going to teach you and instruct you and encourage you and comfort you. Notice here in the context of reminding them of their mission, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now question, what, what's this all about here? I mean, all of this time, have the followers of Jesus been operating this whole time in the flesh only? In other words, the Holy Spirit has been inactive amongst them this whole time? I submit to you that that's not the case. Obviously, up until now, they've had Jesus there with them, right? Who himself was full of the Holy Spirit. But now here in their official ministry in his absence, and as they're beginning this official ministry, there's no way that they can carry out this mission in their own strength. They need the Spirit of God. More than a month later, according to Acts chapter 1, other followers too will have the Spirit of God come upon them and be empowered by the arrival of the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts chapter 2 is the inauguration of what we call the the church. This beautiful new living organism was birthed in Acts chapter 2 with the arrival of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But right now, what's happening in the present is that Jesus' disciples especially need to be strengthened. They need to be empowered as they face this daunting task of witnessing concerning Jesus. And so note... One, they're reminded of their mission. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. They're reminded of their dependence, which is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And then they're reminded of their message, which is this beautiful message about forgiveness, right? Look at verse 23, brothers. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Obviously, This forgiveness is not granted by the disciples or the apostles in and of themselves. It's forgiveness for those who embrace the message that they will be proclaiming concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
about forgiveness found in the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus, put it in context. Jesus preached this message of forgiveness for people when they put their trust in himself, in Jesus. The apostles preached the same message as well. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Paul says, Let it be known to you, brethren or brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That was Paul preaching there. And then bringing further clarity to what John chapter 20, verse 23 means is the parallel account of Luke chapter 24 and verse 24. Listen to this. Luke 24 and verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here it is. This is what all the Scriptures were ultimately pointing to as the ultimate implication of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. He says, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in the name of Jesus, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's the implication of the person and the work of Jesus. That whoever turns from their sins, repents of their sins, and puts their trust in Jesus, in his person and his work, can be forgiven. And so the condition is repentance. The result, forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is centered upon and made possible by the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious resurrection. Amen? And the implication, brothers, is this. If you are in Christ tonight, that you and I as followers of Jesus would understand our place, know our place in this mission of gospel proclamation. As I exhorted us as a congregation a couple of weeks ago, are you living this out? Are you living this out? As a follower of Jesus who's trusted in him, not only have you been given, granted forgiveness, but now you are to be a proclaimer of forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, is are you living that out? In your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, out in the world, in the context of the church, are you sharing and talking about the life-giving message of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. See, we need to see Jesus for who He is. He's the risen, exalted Savior of the universe. And then know our place within this mission. And be sold out for that mission of the cause of Christ. Amen? So we need to be about. What a privilege to have a place in this mission. All because we have a, a, a serve a king who is alive, brothers. There's a fellow brother and friend of mine who wrote a song sometime back on the resurrection of, of Jesus. It's, an, it's a rap song, okay? But this is a sanctified rap song, okay? I'm not a rap music fan, but this is a brother who was redeemed. And just listen to the lyrics of his song, okay? It's about the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you've heard it before. He says, Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Dee and John Lennon are dead. I know some of you don't believe that, but yes, he is. Biggie and Pac are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Plato is dead. 
Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. World religions? Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. I have no idea who that is. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Napoleon is dead. Lao Tzu is dead. Che Guevara and Henry VIII are dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Annas, Caiaphas, and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Amen? Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we are so grateful for our risen, ascended, exalted, returning Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be so captivated by the Lord Jesus as we continue to study the Gospel of John so that we would be propelled all the more to tell people about the hope found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.